And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be, be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can't do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, 
the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone be, would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be, will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May God give us understanding in this text that we preach through as we read this morning. If you would, remain standing with me in a word of prayer. We'll bow in prayer. Then our choir will come for a... Uh, special music, and then the preaching of God's word today. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we have come to, together. We thank you for allowing us to meet together today, to have a place with a roof, roof over our heads where we can meet and worship and praise you. We thank you for each one here today, and we will pray, Lord, that you'd open our minds, help us to be receptive, to be willing, to be ready to take in your word, ready to hear from you and to follow you, to walk in your ways, to conform ourselves, our lives so that we submit to you and walk according to your truth. We pray that you would guide us, give us understanding of your truth, open our eyes so that we might see our hearts that we might be willing to obey what it is you have for us. We pray for those who are not here. Lord, some who are traveling, we thank, thank you and pray for safety, for especially for Andy and Chantel and their family as they travel. 
We think of those who are sick. And just this morning, Lord, Lord I heard of, of Jonathan who has had an asthma attack. We pray for him that you might um, help him, his body, and that you would give him the air passage and allow him to breathe and to recover. I just heard this morning from my dad who's not feeling well and hasn't been well all week. We just pray that you would comfort him. Lord, as you would just be with him, your presence might be a comfort to him, that he would know for sure that he is yours and that you, he is in your hands every moment and every part of his life. We thank you for his walk with you, his faithfulness, his trust in you, his example that he's been to so many of us, and his example that he's been to me as a son. So I pray, Lord, that you would just be with, give him grace in this time of his life as he suffers in many ailments, that you would just be with him and watch over him. And so I pray for others, Lord, that I may not have mentioned or may not even be aware of that need your comfort and need your healing and need your grace. And I pray that you'd minister in your own way. So we pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds by his wounds we are healed we are healed by your sacrifice and the life that you gave we are healed for you paid the price by your grace we are saved, we are saved. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. And the life that you gave, we 
are healed for you paid the price by your grace we are saved we are saved he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our sins the punishment that brought us peace was upon him by his wounds by his wounds we are healed by his wounds what can wash away my sin nothing but the from this morning I'd like to publicly thank our leaders of our children's group and with the presentation they gave to us last week and what a blessing it was it's always a blessing to see um, God work in, in our children and uh, in fact part of our text this morning deals with children and having that mindset so we thank we're thankful to God that our children are being taught in God's Word and shown the truth and they they will have that example set before them as I was raised in that way I had no excuse for turning away from God and his word and yet my heart would try and do that but praise God he kept me he had his hand on me and he kept me in his hand and I praise God for that today in in chapter 9 we deal with a number of difficult um, things difficult things to understand in fact that's almost like the theme here things that are difficult to understand the first is called the transfiguration and it says in in verse 2 well, verse 1 is the promise. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And right after that is the verse, and we see what Jesus has spoken of coming into effect. I'm glad it's written this way in the Gospel of Mark because the chapter opens with his promise, and then it shows us how that's fulfilled. Now we question how is that fulfilled, but it is fulfilled here for us and, and put in front of us. And it's put in such a way that we struggle to understand. It, it's something that, that we have not seen before. Look what he says. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves. First of all, he takes just this small group, this subset of the disciples. The, the top three leaders he takes with them and he's going to reveal to them something special. And since it's revealed to them and recorded in God's word, we get to see it for what it is as well. It says that he was transfigured before them. Wow. What does that mean? Well, look and see what it means. First of all, we see the impact of it. His clothes became radiant. So whatever happened to him affected even the stuff that touched him, right? 
even his clothes. It didn't say he changed his clothes. It says the clothes he had on became radiant. They began to glow like nobody's business. And if you were there to see it, as the disciples were there to see it, they were like, uh-oh, whoa, what's going on here? It was something they had never seen before, and they didn't know what to make of it. The next thing that happens, it says, um, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. So two men appeared on the scene. Now, I don't know, I can only surmise as you would, how they knew it was Elijah and Moses. They didn't have uh, books like we have with, with, with pictures of probably, they could have had artists who, who kept their image in front of them, I don't know. But somebody had to tell them who they were, right? But they found out this was in fact Elijah and this was in fact Moses. Why those two? Well, Moses represents the law, doesn't he? And so he, he's the one that got used to bring the law. And I would imagine that Elijah represents the prophets. So we have their representation of the law and the prophets. But these individuals there, and they were there with Jesus. So we see Jesus, we see Elijah, we see Moses, and we see the three disciples, Peter, James, and John. It says they were talking with Jesus. Now we don't know what they said and what Jesus said to them. We could imagine what Jesus might have said. We could imagine how they would look forward to who Jesus is. But we, it's not recorded exactly what they said. But we see the response. We see something that happens next. And, and this helps us understand why it was written. Why this event is recorded for us. It says, verse 5, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we're here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, that's what he said, but then the narrator <laughs> helps us understand what was going on. Now, what was going on? It says, but he did not know what to say. <laughs> for they were terrified. That's the truth. He didn't know how to process what he was seeing, and he just was speaking out loud, and it didn't make a whole lot of sense what he was saying. Why they should build three tents or three places of, of residence for these. And notice what he's saying, let's build three. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. What is God's response to that? Obviously, they're seeing something that is totally unusual. They're seeing what Jesus said will be a representation of the kingdom in its power. Well, what is that? I think simply it is seeing that what you have is the greatest from the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and a greater one than all of these. A greater one than all of these. How do we know that? Well... Read on. It says, And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, who's the voice? Well, let's see what he said. This is my beloved son. So it's the father. It's the father. This is my beloved son. He didn't say, check out Moses and Elijah. He says, this is my beloved son. And what does he say? Listen to him. Listen to him. So he says, 
in verse 1, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. The kingdom of God then represents Jesus in his place. His place of power over and above all and everyone else. And that's just made clear as we see. We hear the voice from heaven and then we see what happens. It says, and suddenly... Looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. The voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him and everybody else vanishes. There's Jesus alone. The message is very clear. But they don't understand what's going on. And the Bible allows us to see them in, in kind of in a process of processing. What's going on? Do you realize what happened in the chapter before? In chapter 8, verse 29, he asked them, what, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. So Peter recognizes he, God gives him the revelation that this Jesus is the Christ. And he acknowledges that. But with that acknowledgement, he still doesn't understand everything fully. Can you relate to that? I can. I can. In other words, we know enough of the truth not to stray from it, and yet there's many questions and things that we don't quite understand. I think that's what this chapter is about. We know the truth. We know enough of the truth so that we can say clearly and we have enough of the truth to live our whole lives on even though there are things that we can have questions about. You and I have questions. Peter, James, and John would have had questions. What does this all mean? But we know enough of the truth. Whatever it means, we see that Jesus is clearly preeminent and above all and the one to be recognized by God the Father as the one that we must submit to, listen to, and obey. What else do you need to know? Go on from there. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Now, why not tell anybody what they had seen? It wasn't time yet. There's, a, there's several times in Jesus' ministry where he tells people, don't say anything about this yet, or don't mention this. One of the reasons is he simply didn't want vain and empty followers. People would follow him. People are already crowding him and following him all over, and they had different thoughts uh, as to who he was and, and what his purpose was. And there was many misunderstandings. In fact, it wasn't all clear in the disciples' eyes what would happen and what he would do. It became clear who he was, as we see from Peter's pronouncement, you are the Christ. But they still didn't understand all the things about him. And Jesus realized that. And he was, he was he was allowing these things. He, he was bringing them in a little bit at a time as they were able to take them in. He said, don't tell them all this yet until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. 
So again, remember the last chapter, he began to clearly tell them that he had to suffer. He was going to be rejected. He was going to suffer. He was going to be persecuted. He was going to be killed. And he would, again, he would also rise from the dead. He's been very clear and very plain about this truth. One of the lessons here is listen to what Jesus says plainly. Take that in and live that out. Trust the other things that you don't clearly understand or know the details of because that's okay. It's okay not to know everything or not to understand everything. You have enough that you can understand. And so he says this. So they, I'm at verse 10 now. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. You know, they didn't quite get it. Why would they not get it? Did they not understand what rising and from the dead? Could they not put those two concepts together? Yeah, they can understand that. What was problematic in their thinking was why the Messiah would be dead and why he would have to rise. They, they couldn't put their finger on that. They couldn't come to grips with that. But they ask another question. Verse 11, they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? It's another thing they didn't clearly understand. Jesus makes it clear. Elijah does come first to restore all things. Then he focuses back on himself. How is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He says, you need to understand what the Old Testament says about Jesus, about the Christ, about the Messiah. He's going to suffer many things and be treated with contempt. We see that written. We see Isaiah 53, verse 3 and following, how the, the Messiah would suffer, be rejected, and be killed. Jesus points it out that this is truth that you find hard to, to, to reconcile in your thinking, but it is God's word. And so he says, verse 13, but I tell you, Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. He's clearly speaking that John the Baptist was the Elijah, was a representation of Elijah, fulfilled that role in coming, and he was rejected. If I can take you back to chapter 1 of Mark, you notice here, early as Jesus' ministry began, notice the context of his ministry in verse 14. Let's read verse 12 and 13 first. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Notice the context of it. The first part of verse 14. After John was arrested. All of this happened in Jesus' ministry is after John the Baptist had been rejected, had been arrested, and at some point killed. And so Jesus' ministry is starting right in that air and right at that point. And now he says to you, look, Elijah has come and he's been rejected. He's been put down. And now we, we understand later on excuse me, earlier in Mark, that John, in fact, has been put to death. Not only arrested, but put to death. He's been rejected. 
Verse 14 now, chapter 9. We see another incident where Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. We see the scribes arguing with Jesus' disciples as Jesus comes with Peter, James, and John to his group. He's noticed this commotion going on, and he asked them, what are you arguing about? And they, one man steps out, and he tells them, say, hey, I brought my son to your disciples, and he had a spirit, an evil spirit, a demonic spirit, and it was trying to destroy him, and your disciples could not could not cast that spirit out. And so that was the argument that they were having. What does this text teach us? It teaches us several things. First of all, it says, um, uh, verse 17, Teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. I heard it talked a little bit about in Sunday school, and I see it in our culture today. We, we have this phrase called follow the science, Right? We have it about COVID, and, and we act like it's something new. And In fact, it, the, the, the societal viewpoint is that somehow science leads us to truth, and it should be our complete guide. And if we go against that, somehow we're going against science. So-called science has been used to tell lies. It's not that we go against science. There's certain things that science just cannot reveal. There's certain things that science cannot speak on. There's certain things science doesn't even know, doesn't have a hint of. When we think about following science, what we're saying is we should use the knowledge available to us to judge things. I don't have a problem with that if we use it and use it properly. But we're seeing we're using it to, to show things that cannot be shown. What we see here is it says here that this father had a son who was demon-possessed. Science cannot account for the spiritual world. It cannot attest to it. It cannot deny it. It shows no proof one way or the other. Science looks for evidence and calls and can't find it. And in fact, science is predicated on the, on the thought that there is not a spiritual world. Everything is to be judged only by what can be seen and demonstrated. So science starts often with the idea God does not exist. So where are you going to go when you start with foolishness? Not just a lie, but foolishness. Now there is true science that would examine God's creation and see God's principles and God's laws laid out in creation and would follow correctly those things. But that science, even that science, has to acknowledge some things that it cannot know, things that it cannot examine. We've been taken by the whole world of behavioral science 
as if they can say things in a surety that we ought to call gospel. And right here in this text, we see some of the things that conflict with that. This text says this child had a demonic spirit that caused physical ailments. Science can't either attest to that, prove it, or deny it. What they do is give you a pill and say, take this and you'll be all right, or you'll be a little better. This text shows us that this individual was possessed by a demonic spirit. Now, you can say, well, that's just what the Father said. Well, maybe you think Jesus is crazy when he begins to talk to this demonic spirit and command him to go and never return again. He ain't talking to a virus. He's not talking to an immaterial thing. He's talking to a being. But science can't attest to that. And I'm not putting down science. I'm just saying understand the limitations in a world that science cannot speak to. He says, wherever it seizes him, first of all, the spirit makes him mute. I have to take it for what it says, this boy can't talk because of the demon inside of him. And ain't no pill going to remedy that. What's the impact? Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, in other words, it's not all the time. It's periodic. It's from time to time. We don't know when, why. But when it does, it tries to destroy him. And one thing I ask, so how come it didn't completely destroy him? I don't have the answer to that. Maybe God set a boundary and said, you can do this and so much. He did with Job, didn't he? You can do certain things, but only so much. But you would think, it says in verse, and Jesus asked him, he says, how long has this been happening to him? He says, from your childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. My question, if it cast him into fire and into water, how come he ain't dead already? Well, for some reason, there seemed to be some limit on what he could do. But what he could do was terrifying and scary and destructive. And that it did. It says in verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So we see something that's happening in the physical world that is clearly attributed to the spiritual world that no medicine or science can either test or remedy. That alone should allow us to see that we need to go to God for our answers. We need to seek his help and his remedy. Continue on. So this man has come to that. 
I would imagine he's gone to all kinds of sources and he comes to Jesus. He just happens to come to Jesus when Jesus is away and he deals with Jesus' disciples. And the disciples find that they can't do anything here. Jesus' reaction, verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. Can you see him sigh there? It's like, oh, whew. Faithless generation. How long? How long do I have to put up with you, he says. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring them to me. Talks to the father. And the father says, verse 22, It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus highlights something that the man says. If... If I can do anything, you've come to me as your last resort, and you have this tinge of doubt. Why the doubt? Could it be because of me or what you see in my limitations? Because you haven't seen limitations with me. You've seen me raise the dead. You've seen me control all of the elements. You've seen me do anything and everything that no one else can do. So the limitation is not in me, it's in you. What do you mean, if you can? All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, says the father, or the child cried out and says, I believe, help my unbelief. It's great theology in that verse, but it's just practical theology is what it is. Lord, I'm desperate, and I see the evidence, and yet I'm lacking in faith. That's where we are. Lord, I'm desperate. I hope we are where we are. That's where this man was. He was desperate. It's good to be desperate because we're running to God for answers. But he says, I see all that you've done. I've heard the messages. I've, I've heard the sermons. I know. I, I've seen. I've heard what you're capable of. But somehow in me, there's still this doubt. But he cries out, help my unbelief. <laughs> I love that. That's where we are. Lord, it's been, look, this whole chapter is about that. In the chapter before, Peter says, who are you? You are the Christ. Now, we know you are the Christ. And, and Jesus uh, 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 rebukes the disciples for their faithlessness. Oh, faithless generation, he says. He's not just talking about the Father. He's talking about his disciples as well. Now, the purpose of this, I don't think, is that we become super faith Christians. Because if we were, that would just point to us. Christian with the cape on. Look at me. I got all faith. The truth is, none of us have that. But the point of this is to direct 
Whatever faith we have, direct it in the proper one. Direct it in Jesus, and something good happens. Notice this man, he's got a, he's got a tinge of doubt, just a touch, a smidgen of faith, but he's come on his last resort, on his last leg, to, 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 to come to Jesus. Teeny-weeny bit of faith in the right place, Jesus. Some miraculous things do happen. Put your faith. You have a little. We all do. Put it in Jesus. Put it in Jesus. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Now, the Bible tells us this is what he does. So, as I mentioned before about science and, and miracles, we see what Jesus did. It doesn't say simply that he healed the boy. It says he rebuked the unclean spirit. Now, I don't think this is a model for you and I to, to go after and to follow. It's for us to see who Jesus is and what he has done. We need to take our issues, take our problems to Jesus. He rebukes the unclean spirit. There's some things that are happening in our life that we may not either be, be able to understand, comprehend, and we certainly can't address because we don't have the power. But we can come like this man to Jesus. There is hope. We can come to Jesus. Jesus is still available. Jesus rebukes this unclean spirit. And look what he says. I command you, come out, never enter him again. Jesus ain't playing. He means business. And I'm so thankful for that. There's not a situation in our life that Jesus can't speak to and work in. There's not a case in the world that is too far gone for Jesus to address. He has that power. So it's not just our great faith and, you know, we don't need to do these spiritual exercises to increase our faith. Now, yes, we'll grow in faith as we walk with Christ. But as we grow in faith, guess what? We'll depend more and more on Jesus, not less and less. We'll lift him up more and more, not ourselves. It says, what happened after Jesus spoke this? After crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out. He says, the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he's dead. We don't know what happened there. Most people thought he was dead, but all we know is this. Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up. <laughs> he raised him up. So the end result is what we're concerned about is that he was healed. He was released of that demonic spirit that had possession on him, and Jesus cleansed him. Now the disciples asked that they got in privacy, how come we couldn't do that? 
And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by, by anything but prayer. In other words, there's power as we commune with God in our personal walk. There's power as we begin to commune with God. Now, some people get caught up. When I say power, they think, oh, I want that power. What you want is a walk with God, and you're close to the power already. As you begin to rely on God. See, we want it for our own self-gratification. I want to show you what I can do. Look, I'll walk into any place, and I can do anything. I can do the miracles that Jesus... No, that, that's... We learn later in this chapter... That's not where we need to be. The power that we need is to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ, relying and trusting in him. Let's go on. Jesus gives the message. Verse 30. He was, verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, they will kill him, and when he was killed, when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Don't you get that kind of, I heard this before? <laughs> because he said this before, he said it very plainly, he's saying it for the second time very clearly, so his disciples will know. They're not getting it right now. He's saying it so that when it does happen, they will reflect back, and it will connect with them. This is what God intended all along. In other words, the death of Jesus is not an accident. It's not something that, that happened along the way that, that God didn't, wasn't ready for, or something in God's, that wasn't in God's plan. It's been planned all along, and it doesn't upset God's plan. It, it, it is it's God's plan being worked out. And so he teaches them. He's telling them. He tells them this privately. So they would know. Look at their reaction, verse 32. They did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. They didn't understand it. They weren't ready for it. But Jesus still told them so that they'd be able to take this and take it in afterwards. This whole chapter seems to be about that. They, they don't understand and react in, in, in goofy ways. He wants us to know. He wants us to rely on on his word he wants us to rely on him next part the caption says who's the greatest they're they're on their way again and jesus asked the question what were you talking about what were you discussing he said they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest now, just the context of this is, is amazing. Jesus tells them, look, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be persecuted. And, and I'm going to be put to death. Then I'll rise again. What are they thinking about? Who's top? Who's number one? Who's the greatest? And Jesus calls them out. He asks them, what, what, what you arguing about? Now, at this point, they're ashamed. That's why they kept silent. I guarantee they did not keep silent when one said he was the greatest and the other one thought he was. There was an argument that went on. There was combating going on. Now, when Jesus asks, they're silent. They're ashamed, and they should be ashamed. 
and how he ministers to them. It says, he sat down and called the 12, verse 35, and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You want to be a great, you want to be a leader, Jesus says, you're going to have to be a servant. The whole point here is humility, humbling oneself before God and before one another is what has to happen. And to set this example, he calls a child in front of them, verse 36. He took a child, put him in the midst, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He says, you think you're the greatest? I'm looking at the lowliest in the group. And when you're ready to accept the lowliest one, the one who, who is who's not singled out for anything great, but is, has no standing in your group, then you're ready to receive me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He's teaching them humility, humbleness, surrender, right thinking of themselves and of others, and putting others before themselves. He's, he's modeling that for them. In that same line, the next section comes when John asks him, he said, Teacher, we saw one casting demons, casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, that seems to make sense. The disciples, you would think, naturally would have this idea, we are the closest ones to Jesus. So if anyone is going to exert that kind of power, it ought to be us. And if you're not part of us, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But Jesus cautions them on that attitude. Look, he says, anyone doing my work, don't you reject. Just because they're not with you. If they're doing my work, if they're doing my will, don't cast them out. Don't throw them out. Don't reject them. Don't refrain. And don't stop them. He says very clearly, verse 39, do not stop them. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. One who is not against us is for us. And he says this, if you give a cup of, cold, a cup of water to drink, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. The one who does the smallest thing in the name of Christ for those who serve Christ, God will honor, is what he's saying. He's saying there's much benefit in honoring Christ, even the smallest thing done, the proper motive in the name of Christ will be rewarded. Now that's encouraging. That's the encouragement that I can't possibly give as a human being that God promises and guarantees. He says, look, everything you do for his glory, for his name, will be recognized and rewarded, even if it's not recognized and rewarded here on earth. Now, it's great that we encourage one another. And we need to encourage, and it's good to get encouraged. And, uh, you know, from time to time, people have come to me and said, well, Pastor... I'm not being encouraged. 
My response to that is that happens often. I didn't say it's right or accepted. It happens often. But know this, God recognizes and encourages all that's done for his glory. When others can't do that. Now maybe they would be right to do that. Maybe you want it too much, that's another story. But maybe they will be right to do that and acknowledge that. Be sure that even if they don't, God does. Nothing flies past him. He will recognize and reward all that's done for his glory. What we tend to do is we, we, we put a, a, a special price and a joy for the public recognition that we would get. And that might be due to you. But recognize God doesn't forget what's done. Recognize this as well, that oftentimes when a person does and lives for Christ, lives for the Lord, it's often not rewarded here in equal ways. I guess the prime example of that would be John the Baptist. He had lived a faithful life. And he was put down by an evil king, his evil mistress and her daughter. Put to death. But God recognized him for who he is. And God will recognize him for he is. So recognize that when you do God's work, it can easily be slighted on this side of glory, but it will never be slighted by God. And he will reward. He said to this point, even if you give something as small as a drink of water to one of my servants, if you do something for my work, for my ministry, for my glory, God says, it's recognized. The smallest thing is recognized. What a great encouragement. Jesus is teaching this because the disciples have missed this point. They want to be great and they want to be recognized. Jesus really doesn't condemn them for wanting to be great and even wanting recognition, but he teaches them that that's not the path that they live. You're not going to be seen as great here on earth. And that's not the path you should pursue. God will, in fact, recognize. You ever gone to a graduation, and I've often gone to one, and I often think that they were too long, you know. They got to read every name individually. Folks got to walk across the stage. Everybody got to get their little walk on and, and shout out. You know, they always ask, you ever notice, they always ask if you would please hold your applause until all of the ones have crossed. Never happens, right? Never, especially in our ghetto and I, get, I call them ghetto graduations, you know. You could be graduating from, from, from kindergarten and the whole family got to come and shout you out. So you ain't even accomplished nothing yet. But we want it. We want that recognition. <coughs> but I, I was saying, I often thought it was just too long. They're reading all these names. Everybody got to say something good. Blah, 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 blah. Let's get it done and get, let's get out of here, you know. Get, but guess what? God is going to take the time to recognize every deed done for his glory. 
and you and I are going to sit through it. Amen. <laughs> He's going to recognize everything that's done for his glory. That should be encouragement enough for us to continue and to be faithful in serving him. A lot of stuff that you do is done in private and in secret. That God is judging even the secrets of the heart. A lot of little things that you do, you do with the right heart. And nobody would be able to see that, what's going on in your heart. When you come over to clean and, and you do stuff people didn't even ask you to do and you pick it up. And no, you, see, you think, nobody ever sees this. And maybe they don't. But God does. And he does reward that. That's one of the scariest things I have as a pastor. I'm thinking, Lord, I, I can preach a great sermon, but you know what? When we get to heaven, guess who's going to really get the reward? <laughs> the ones who've been faithfully served, who had no position, who had no recognition. And I didn't even know what they was doing. But the true story will be told then. So recognize that. Verse 42 through 50. It's connected. And he's talking about temptations to sin. But notice in talking about temptations to sin, he starts off with how it impacts even the smallest ones in his kingdom. He says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and then the rest of that comes, so it's an emphasis on how we treat and the impact that we have on, even on the least in God's kingdom. He's saying, I'm careful and I'm watching and I care about those little ones. Little ones could be small children. It could be young believers. It, it, representation really is the least, the humblest, the lowest, quote unquote, in God's kingdom. He says, I care about them. And I recognize the smallest thing done for them, and I recognize anything done against them, they're going to have to answer to me. That's what he's saying. He says, whoever calls one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it will be better for him. If a great millstone were hung around his neck, he was thrown into the sea. <coughs> Remember, we looked at crucifixion of Jesus and we saw um, Judas as he betrayed Jesus and one of the things that Jesus says after Judas left you know he said to Judas basically go and do what you plan to do I know what's in your mind you're going to betray me after he left he said to the disciples yeah it's tough for me to be betrayed to be persecuted, to suffer. But woe to the one by who it came by. He says, it had been better for that person to never have been born. That's pretty strong. That's a huge truth. In the same way he's saying, look, be careful in how you impact even the smallest one of mine because you'll have to answer for it. So he says, let's be careful of the impact of sin in our lives because if we go off into sin, 
we can encourage others to do that or discourage others from being faithful. So we are connected to each other. He said, don't think you could just go off and do your thing by yourself and not impact so many others. You know, most of us, when we think, we don't like to think that way because we want to be independent. We want to do our own thing. Don't be looking at me. Just because I did this don't mean nothing. No, it does mean something. And it does connect us together. We, we, we are connected. And we impact one another. And he says this, if what you do causes others to sin, be very careful of that. If you have something that's causing you to sin, deal with it in the most extreme way. How could he get more, more extreme and it says, look, if your eye has caused you to sin, you need to gouge it out. Now, now, we know the significance of that. We know that, look, if a man is lusting on a woman, that gouging his eyes out is not going to stop him from lusting because we know lust comes from the heart. He can have his eyes fully closed and he's still in the same sinful frame of mind. But what is Jesus saying? He's saying, whatever causes you, whatever, whatever is a stumbling block for you in going into that sin, you need to deal with in the most severe way. Don't take it lightly. He's saying, look, if catching a bus to work puts you in a wrong place and causes you to sin, then walk. And we, you know, we say, oh, I can't walk. That's what we do. And he says, no, it's that serious. I would prefer you walk every day. If buying a car causes you to sit, don't buy a car. Walk. See, he's saying, take whatever severe measure you need to do when it comes to keeping yourself and your impact on others. And I'm afraid we just take that too lightly, but Jesus is making it so impactful. He's saying, look, it's better for you to go into the kingdom of God with one gouged out eye and one okay than for you to keep on the path that you're on and not get to the kingdom of God at all and find yourself in hell. Now, he's not saying that you can, by your efforts, keep yourself and you will, by doing this or doing that, get into the kingdom of God. And we know that it's by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he's saying in your self-discipline, in your path to walk in obedience to Christ, take that seriously. And the end, recognize the impact that you have on others. You notice how we often choose to sin and we often isolate ourselves from others to do that. Either because of the guilt that we have, we don't want others to, to see what we've done, or for whatever reason. We want to ignore that we're connected with others. We are connected. And we have a responsibility in that connection. 
So there's nothing wrong with feeling guilty for what we've done. We need to respond in the right way. We need to recognize the remedy. I think this chapter deals with a lot of areas where we don't understand or can't see clearly what's going on. But God is calling us to trust him nonetheless. He's saying, I've given you enough. I've given you a clear um, understanding of who I am and all the other doubts and things that come up you have to you have to put that under me you have to trust me you know you've been given enough truth he says to Peter you know that I'm the Christ you don't understand what the transfiguration means you don't understand you get confused of how you ought to respond to Moses and Elijah compared to me but God set you straight with the with the with the uh, voice from heaven you don't have the faith to heal and to cast out demons in this case with the man and his son but this man had little faith and he did come to me and I healed I worked I'm showing you who I am you don't understand why I need to go through the suffering and to the death that I'm going through and you and, and you, you you don't know how that's gonna work out with your relationship with the other disciples and all of that but I'm asking you to look and to focus on me, to trust in me, and to walk in obedience to me. Father, we thank you for your word, for your truth today. We pray that you would continue to make it clear in our minds of how we are to walk with you. Lord, allow us, challenge us, encourage us to be willing to live less for ourselves and more for others more for your glory and less for ours to recognize your purpose and your call in our life we pray Lord if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as the Lord and Savior has heard the gospel and has rejected it or has failed to embrace it because of questions that they have that you would rebuke that spirit in them and then answer their questions and speak to them, leaving them without question, without doubt of how they have enough information right now to trust you, to turn to you. And we pray that that person today might turn to you, surrendering to your purpose and to your will. We pray this now. And that your people, each of us, Lord, as we walk through this week, as we go about our lives, that we would walk in obedience to you, be willing to surrender to you, to obey you, to trust you. In Jesus' name we pray.